Welcome back to another conversation with another wonderful Bushkill group. Uh, this group has five members, and I'm going to let them go ahead and begin by introducing themselves. My name is Kyle Asbell. Howdy. Will Horton. Faith Dingus. Emily Hall. I'm Audrey Happy. Excellent. Thank you all for taking the time to chat with me today, since you had so many choices. Got weak laughter. All right, there we go. All right, getting you warmed up. Okay, so um, uh, we've done a couple of these now, and this group takes a little different tack that I'm kind of interested in talking about with them. So they talk about a number of emerging technologies, how they might play out in the criminal justice process, how they might play in the policy process, and some general trends for what this means for information sharing. So they have a slightly different tack, and uh, I'm excited to hear about it. So, start me out. How did you approach this question of how to use emerging technologies in decision-making? Well, we first started out by just identifying what even is emerging technologies and trying to find a definition so we can kind of go forward from there. So what we found is emergency, emerging technologies are a relatively fast-growing and radically novel technology characterized by a certain degree of coherence persisting over time and with the potential to exert considerable impact on the socioeconomic domains. Um, they, we found that there were five attributes of emerging technologies, which is radical novelty, relatively fast growth, coherence, prominent impact, and uncertainty and ambiguity. Um, so we just kind of wanted to understand that completely before moving forward. And so from there, we focused on how it impacts the criminal justice system, policymaking, and information sharing. Um, and Audrey's going to get us started with the criminal justice system. Yeah. So as she said, the first um, area that we looked at was the criminal justice process, um, which is usually initiated with um, a call to like 911. And right now we have implemented enhanced 911 most places across the nation, which that kind of gives like um, the people an idea of your number, location, and any special needs you might have. Um, but it's been suggested to use emerging technology like broadband communication and satellite communication to receive more accurate and accessible um, information, especially in rural areas um, where they might not have as much access to emerging technologies in 911 calls. Um, and so one of the things that's really important though with just implementing this with enhanced call systems is to have the support of the people who are going to be making those decisions and implementing it and making sure that they're training the people who will have access to this technology and making sure that they're trained in it and that they're willing to be trained in it and they're knowledgeable of that. Um, and so obviously with this there comes the concern of privacy. That was something that happened when Enhanced 911 was introduced, but after 9-11 that kind of like became less important. However, it's still something that might like they might face some backlash with privacy concerns if they implement this. Um, but overall, I think it would be a really good thing because it could produce, it could provide more accurate locations and information for callers so that they can get assistance faster. Um, and then we also looked at police response. So one of the things that's really important here is interagency communication cooperation. And one of the ways to do that is um, through sharing information such as like socioeconomic profile, crime profiles, and enforcement profiles of communities with other communities that might be similar in that makeup. Um, and then they can kind of look at how have they, how has this community that's successful in this area um, address these concerns if they have similar um, community profiles. And that's, so that's one way to increase communication, collaboration. And then there's also um, using robots and drones more frequently. Um, 
the Pentagon has already requested contractors to create a multi-robot pursuit system that guides packs of robots to search for and detect a non-cooperative human. And it's likely that that could be taken by police because police often get like military, sometimes they'll like get military and... Great weapons? Yes. Yeah. So it's possible that that will happen. Um, and it could also just help with patrolling communities, detaining suspects, um, gathering surveillance, and um, in some situations using force. And so it's really important that if they will be using force or detaining um, suspects that they are held to the same standard as police and that they're, that's very carefully monitored and implemented. Um, I'm picturing high-speed chases with like robots running down the road and drones <laughs> yeah. flying in. Yeah. Pretty wild, yeah. Um, and so the next process is going to be investigations. And one of the biggest problems facing um, investigating crimes right now is the huge increase in digital evidence. Um, so we already have a lot of backlog, or backlog with just our forensic labs in general, but it's even more so with digital evidence because we're collecting more devices. Those devices have bigger storage capacities. Um, and then they also have, when you're collecting digital forensics, you have to have an understanding of technology, of law, of um, data mining, networking, and all of these things that go into that, um, which means that training for that is really, really important, especially as it grows and it's something that all levels of law enforcement are familiar with and are being trained in. Um, and so ways to address the big data problem um, are to implement emerging technologies such as how to map produce programs and forensic cloud environment. And those are kind of like, they're open source, so they're publicly available. They're spread across multiple um, ser servers and devices so that they, like if there's a failure with one device, it doesn't stop the whole system. Um, it's using a network instead of just like a computer just in one area. Um, and those types of things that can help it process information much faster and allow for like if there is something that goes wrong in the process, it doesn't stop the entire process. Um, and so that's one of the ways that they can improve that. Um, and it will help streamline the digital forensic process, reduce backlog, and increase interagency collaboration. It also will help preserve digital evidence for use in court. Um, which brings us to sentencing. Mm -hmm. A lot of um, cases, 90 to like 95%, are um, disposed of through plea bargaining. Um, and so it's very important that the discretion used by prosecutors, um, since they have so much discretion that they're making really informed decisions and they're making decisions that are suitable for the crime and for um, the person's background and their criminal history. And so there are AI that can recommend sentences after considering like um, the crime that was committed, committed, the victims, the criminal history of the person, and those types of things, and it can recommend um, um, as sentence, which could help augment prosecutors in that um, aspect. And then also um, with the federal rules of evidence that assigns judges to determine admissibility for, um, for expert testimony. And a lot of the time judges, while they know a lot about the law, they might not know everything about like a forensic process. They're like mm -hmm. um, IT and like the types of things that these um, experts are gonna come to testify on. And so by having an AI that is like has the legal knowledge and the scientific knowledge required, they could help make those decisions and they could be more informed. Um, and it would also uphold the rules of evidence and it would provide greater 
uniformity across the process, um, and it could improve the decision making made by judges. And so. So there's all kinds of ways that not only we can think about emerging technologies in the future of, say, criminal justice process or policing, there are lots of ways in which technologies are already being utilized to change how these services are delivered. Interesting. All right. Um, all right, tell me a little bit about the way in which uh, these technologies are affecting the policy process. Alrighty, so policy, uh, looking at the policy formation process, we figured out that there are about four ways that um, policymakers can go about using new technologies. So there's anticipating, informing, understanding, and engaging through various means during the policymaking process. So in anticipating, uh, we kind of came up with the idea of using technology to anticipate, to prepare for potential threats and emergencies, whether that's um, domestic or abroad. And one of the areas that we focus on, for instance, was using technology to fight off uh, human trafficking. So I know that you're pretty familiar with DARPA, um, mm -hmm. Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. Uh, back in 2014, they created this program called MEMEX, which is designed to increase the search capabilities within the deep web, which is a part of the web that's typically inaccessible by regular search engines. And as a result of that, hundreds of arrests have taken place, which is establishing precedent for developing new technologies to anticipate even more of these threats. And then also, cyber attacks, uh, the increased potential for internal and external cyber attacks has just led to the government to become more reliant on AI for defensive and offensive cybersecurity purposes. And because of the ability of AI to recognize patterns within large sets of data, they're able to do that like more quickly and efficiently than a human could. So that was kind of our process in anticipating for threats. Excellent. So you also talked about different uh, other roles that could be played in the policy process, like informing, understanding, engaging. Anybody um, like to share some thoughts on that? Yeah. So uh, moving on to the informing piece, uh, this might come as a surprise, but policymakers don't know everything. Oh, shocker. Uh, but professors do. Professors yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, there we go. And the two don't usually go hand in hand. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> um, and so by informing them, by using technology to uh, like new measurements, new, new ways to find information, um, we can bring more information to policymakers' attention so that they have more informed decisions they can make. They can find better ways to, um, to decide what's working with policy, what isn't working, what needs to be changed, what needs to be dropped. And uh, two great examples of this come from climate change where um, in the Pacific Islands there was a research study done uh, where the researcher argued that they were using a landlocked approach to climate change, meaning a place that isn't, has no water around it, whereas on this country they're an island, a small island in the middle of the ocean. Um, so maybe a landlocked approach doesn't really work all that well. Mm -hmm. And in their research, they of course found uh, yeah, that this approach wasn't working. And so that's an important piece of information for policymakers to know. You know what we're doing is not working because we weren't well informed enough to think about the fact that we aren't a landlocked uh, country and we need to consider the effects the ocean has. And another example of this would be um, in a British community there was a uh, forest they were looking at, specifically certain types of trees in the area, to see how they would do with their predicted um, expectations of how much um, plastic pollution would be um, affecting the forest. And they found that those trees would, would be fine with what they expect. The 
pollution to be. So maybe that's an area where they don't need to focus so much on making sure that those trees will survive because they will be okay. And so, yeah, um, that's a great way to inform policymakers on this information so they know you know, what is working, what to work on, and what to maybe fix or change moving forward. Um, and then after that, we look at understanding. Understanding is really an interesting one because it's moving into the idea of looking at fields that are brand new or haven't even started yet. Um, so something like AI or um, gene editing where there's a ton of different things that could potentially happen. And so obviously you want to try and get the best outcomes you can from this and avoid the potential negative impacts. And um, an example of this is of course gene editing with the uh, CRISPR-Cas9 uh, system which um, to boil it down very simply, edits genes so it could potentially be used to um, cure all human disease or genetic diseases or alter your hair color before you're born. Uh, or it could even be used for something very evil like systemic uh, racism and make, creating a divide in humans where you have superhumans who are genetically altered who act and think they are better than people who aren't. And with such a wide array of things that could happen, uh, it's very important for policymakers to understand the technologies that are coming out. It's reasonable to assume most, if not all, congressional members are not experts in gene editing. And so at least having a basic understanding of what it is and what's going on can tremendously help them. Yeah, that reminds me of some of the, oh, sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, that, that reminds me of some of the, uh, some of the videos of some of the uh, uh, commissions, or not really commissions, but, uh, well, now I'm going to blank on what they're called but where they brought in technological experts uh, to ask them questions Congress has in the Senate, and then they have these kind of hilarious questions that they ask. Like, uh, there's one that was like, asking how Facebook or Google One made money if they didn't sell anything. And it was like, oh, well, you kind of missed the whole boat on how this digital economy thing works. So yeah, to your point though, I think uh, in uh, helping lawmakers and policymakers understand what these technologies actually are and how they work would be really important for the policy process. Because one would think one would want to know what they're talking about when they're you know, voting on this huge thing that could mm -hmm. end the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> um, and then our last one for um, policymakers uh, to potentially use with new and emerging technologies is engagement with constituencies. Um, it doesn't matter if you're the best policymaker in the world. If you're not working with your constituents, doing what's in their best interest, and uh, fighting for what they want, eventually they're going to vote you out. And so that's, that's an important thing for a policymaker for their own career um, to, to know what people want, to know who they're representing. And so we have websites, polling uh, methods, databases, all these different things that can help them to know what their constituents want. Um, for example, there's the Vote Foundation website, which I found last week, where you type in where you live and it tells you exactly who represents you and then you can rate them on what you think they've done for their for their for the area and on certain issues, and that's an incredibly easy way as a policymaker to see how well you're doing, mm -hmm. and so it's important to use that so that you can continue to be a good policymaker and do what your constituents wants. Very nice, thank you, sir. So uh, I've kind of walked through emerging technologies in the criminal justice process, emerging technologies in the policy process, and then you talk here about information sharing. So explain this section to me. Um, so I'll be starting with social media. Um, we wanted to review how social media um, is involved.
information sharing and how it can impact decision making um, and how decision makers can use this new type of technology. So that defines social media um, technologies, well, we didn't, someone else did, um, as <laughs> computer-mediated communication technologies that are typically used to connect people as well as to produce and share user-generated content. So we all probably have some form of social media um, application on our phone, um, and it's all about expression, expressing yourself, sharing information, exploring new ideas, and people, there are, it was reported that there are two billion people across the world that use any, some kind of social media technology. Um, and so there was a study that wanted to review credible information on social media sites, because as a decision maker, it's good, you have to know if you're sharing information, you want it to be presented as credible information because there's so much you know, fake news going on right now. Um, so the study reviewed issues of credi credible um, information because you want to be mindful of that when sharing. Um, and they were they classified three different types of what would be credible information sources, and they identified them, identified them as primary, secondary, and tertiary information sources. So primary would be materials that are originally created firsthand. Secondary is um, documents that are presented after the fact, like in books and commentaries, journals. And then tertiary is a collection of primary and secondary information. So that was kind of seen as what would be credible information sources when sharing information on social media sites. Um, Where then, cat memes fit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, before primary. At least in popularity. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what the study found was that social networking sites specifically, because there's like different types of... Um, Media, social media technologies and social networking sites are like Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. They hold um, the greatest potential for sharing information. So uh, that may be intuitive for a lot of us because we have those. Um, but these sites post millions of subscribers um, and they found different ways that pr information producers indicate like cues of credible information. Um, so if we if decision makers can understand those cues, um, and utilize that credible information online, it can be um, really important for sharing information for people to actually take in what the message they're trying to get across. Um, so social media is a tool, and if used properly, it can really reach a lot of people. So that was social media, and then Will is going to kind of continue on on this section. Thank you. The next area that we look at in information sharing starts to get into the idea of 5G tech in cities. And then when you look at your decision makers in cities, what smart governance means as opposed to regular governance. So within 5G tech in cities, we see this as an emerging trend in very large cities who are able to scale up to this informational awareness and capacity this is something that we would obviously still be um, decades out on implementation for you know much of America, given the financial constraints that it takes to implement the firm hardware and software approaches. But in the literature that was available, you know we started going in and looking at how cities can use 5G technology to move from what right now is probably closely making decisions in real time or somewhat after the fact to making decisions instantly in real time. And so one prevalent example was that if you have a major accident on a highway, then using sensors and digital signage, you can preempt that accident you know, a mile back and start redirecting traffic flow to get off the interstate onto the service road. At the same time that you're doing that, 
you've also taken sensors to alter your stoplights at these intersections on the service routes, then now you've changed your timing on your lights so that your redirected traffic is able to still move through the intersection and get back around the wreck and then merge back on. Sounds like more efficient than, you know, like if you go to a big sporting event where they have to hire people to bring out and do traffic, if you could just adjust the traffic lights in real time, that seems like a real benefit. Right, and we would like to go ahead and clarify that no matter how much technology we have integrated in College Station, we're never going to fix traffic here. <laughs> just just from the outside. That. Yeah, especially on game day, that's yeah. just not going to happen. Man, SEC football days. But this was an interesting idea because, you know, one of the key components of 5G integration, for example, is where you place the sensors needed to have your 5G network in place. And the common idea is that a lot of cities have light posts up everywhere. So cities would rent out space to these um, companies like AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, and that's where they could put their sensors. But a very basic question was something like, well, you know, how much is a light post worth? in terms of a monthly rental fee. Mm -hmm. And then if we decide that we want to have this 5G integration, do we have enough citizens in our city who have vehicles or smart homes that are able to have 5G integration? And so what does our citizen involvement look like? And that really takes us then into the idea of smart governance and stakeholder incorporation. Through the literature, um, smart governance is defined as, quote, the capacity of employing intelligent and adaptive acts and activities of looking after and making decisions about something, end quote. And it's sort of an interesting concept because we know that from the very beginnings of democracy, we were always concerned not only with what our decision makers wanted to do, but with what stakeholders had in mind about what those decision makers were going to do. And as Emily had kind of mentioned in the lead end of this section, um, Social media is a really big impact on that, that you can't just sort of ignore what your citizens want because you've assumed that you're somehow making your decisions in an information vacuum. Mm -hmm. As the information sharing capabilities upgrade, you're going to have to be more and more aware of what your citizens really have sort of a demand for. So with this idea of 5G tech in cities, we see that there's a big push in a lot of metropolitan areas for more public transit. And some of the literature had focused on examples of this abroad, like in some provinces and towns in Italy, and how people were really wanting, you know, to have more efficient bus routes, or if you're going to take, you know, the metro, and you want to be able to make sure that your commuter times are increasing. And then we also looked at um, sort of the stakeholder incorporation and the idea that if you can't have citizens, you know, showing up to regular town hall meetings, there are methods of virtual communities. You could Skype in, you could have people present, people could have pre-recorded what they wanted to say and have that submitted for a city council hearing ahead of time. But technology is really allowing more information to be shared that helps have a more holistic developed approach to decision making. And so we see that at the micro level, we also see that at the macro level, we had a little bit of research on um, what this means for larger issues, particularly when it comes to matters of sustainable development globally, um, kind of as Kyle mentioned with climate change. So it's not just that decision makers at the municipal level are really seeing a greater need for information sharing, but that information sharing can also be enhanced at the macro level so we can sort of take this idea of what are the best practices in certain places 
and have a much quicker, greater access to that than you know, um, if you want to link it back to academia instead of having to wait for the annual conference, you know, um, mm -hmm. people would know in real time in a matter of days whether or not a city is doing something that works. A caveat that we included in this, um, an idea that was borrowed from Nick Bostrom is, what if you don't engage your stakeholders, whether that's your citizens or if that's decision makers yourself, you know, but one or two people kind of decide that they want to concentrate this greater amount of information. And so uh, Bostrom discusses something that I found to be kind of interesting, four different types of AIs, your oracles, your genies, your sovereigns, and your tools. And um, in particular, the sovereigns, he says, that it could be constructed in such a way as to accord no one person or group any special influence over the outcome of its decision, and it, being the AI, would resist any at attempt to corrupt or alter its original agenda. You know, and so for us then, that's sort of that, if we have this greater amount of information, you know, you, as other groups have mentioned, do you choose to use it for good or do you use it for bad? And then if you are very well informed, but you're sort of insulated off in this information silo, then the potential to move from something like a tool to something like a sovereign with very little potential for um, reversal starts to look very, um, very prevalent. Yeah, so um, uh, uh, I like Bostrom, as you know, you've had to read Bostrom this semester. Um, and I think he does as much as anyone to kind of highlight the variety of potential outcomes that we might have from emerging technologies as they increase in their in their capacity, and that you know one of the reasons why I wanted to have these discussions with you all is to your point, which is we have to get this right, right? I mean, if you if you go down one path, sometimes there's not a way to turn around. So you can imagine try imagining a world without cell phones now that we've adopted them, right? It's really hard to imagine turning away from that as something that we have, um, and other other cars being another thing, interstates, all these other things. So, you know, it's as we go down the path of adopting some of these more emerging technologies and the roles they might play in the criminal justice system and the policy process, the way they play out for cities, the way they play out for stakeholder incorporation. Um, into smart governance, all of these, um, all these different aspects are things to carefully consider as we adopt these powerful tools. Well done, team. Thank you for your time and thank you for your work. Thank you. Mm -hmm.